everyone you just stepped inside of psychotic bump school the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul my name is dj rome and i want to welcome you to another exciting edition of psychotic bump school so ladies and gentlemen tonight oh yes yes y'all we have an amazing show for you this evening coming up we're gonna welcome back uh, four amazing guests who've all been here before, and uh, one or two of them haven't been here for a little while, so uh, let's break it on down. Uh, we have Emily Wessel returning tonight. Emily Wessel is a mental health clinician in California. She's here to talk to us about the latest in politics, believe it or not, because we had the clemency granted to a mental health worker, and it's having some ripple effects across our politics. And uh, also there was a development in Washington, D.C. that you all will be very, very interested in. So Emily Wessel, being a former D.C. native herself, has something to say about that. So uh, stay tuned for that. Also, I'm proud to welcome back my good brother, Dr. Chase Moore. He has a brand new book coming out called The Emotion, The Tree, and Me. Uh, talks about how families and their children and parents within them can work together and build on the roots that bind us all together. So uh, the emotion, the tree and me is coming out very, very soon. Dr. Chase Moore is here to talk all about it. And finally, I'm really proud to welcome back the uh, final panel. Uh, we're gonna have Janine Cubney as well as Juliana Bowden, and they're gonna be helping us pay tribute to the late and great actress, Janae Dubois. That's right, we lost Janae Dubois. Uh, Y'all remember her as Walona from Good Times as her, perhaps her most famous role. Uh, and of course, she's done many, many things. You're going to be surprised to hear how extensive and wide ranging her career really was. That's Janae Dubois. Janine and Juliana are going to help us break it down about her. So uh, that's going to be our show. So uh, you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back with our first guest, Emily Wessel, after this. This is Emily Wessel, a clinical mental health counselor from California, and you're listening to DJ Rome on Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. <laughs> Dog on the put it tat. But what a girl like you do it all that? 
tough it like a running back yeah. on me silhouette on day yeah. body move like a serpent show me how you ball and i show you how i work it perfect well i like the way you do your thing you've got me drooling like a fiend so work it and don't stop and i like the way you're making that butt drop so party with me i don't think you've seen my type before yeah. got something you will leave your wife before yeah. so big fella if you're ready come on throw it to me heavy like a fourth and long a good lord is surely right that body dynamite she's shaking her Can I get a bone crusher? Ooh, you so bad, mother, please let me touch ya Baby, I love what I see So won't you come and split that with me And we can just party and chill While you're partying and bopping with the king of the hill Now out the oven, blueberry muffin Keep a turkey, lurking for the stuffing Got the whole lobby, singing la-di-da-di We rock the parking like a DC party I see you working at Yeah Hey We was in the cut And she doing the butt So I told her ease up Cause You just moving too fast Big badonga don't It was jigging it like jelly I want on your belly Look I know you're not faithful Your man is so ungrateful I see him in the streets And the clam kinda hateful We ain't in my mansion We just in the club and dancing I ain't making no advancing But my giant hands when I, when I said go She dropped it to the floor She shook it real fast And she brought it up slow So I, so I said Go. She dropped it to the floor. She shook it real fast, then she brought it up slow. Go, go, boy. A good load is surely right. That body dynamite. She's shaking her window. All over the dance floor. A good load is surely mean. Hotter than gasoline. She's shaking her window. Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. Oh, and I'm very excited to have back this guest. She's been here multiple times before, and I am always excited to get her take anytime we have news and mental health and music, and we have both for this segment, ladies and gentlemen. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, counselor, Miss Emily Wessel. Miss Wessel, are you there? 
I'm here. Hi, how are you? Oh, welcome back to Psychotic Bump School. It's always a joy to hear your voice. Well, I wanted to get you here again because we've had some amazing developments. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, as we speak, uh, we have a very, very active political backdrop happening in our country right now. Uh, by the time you hear this, the Nevada caucus will be well in our rearview mirror. It looks like Bernie Sanders has been declared the winner and we are marching ever so closer to Super Tuesday on March 3rd. Make sure you go out and vote. And uh, we're getting closer to figuring out who the Democratic nominee will be to run against number 45, if you know what I mean. And so the reason why number 45 is so uh, pressing in our news, uh, just recently, as uh, Emily Wessel is here to discuss, he has granted clemency to several people, and including and among them is a young woman who was doing time for her crime or her relationship to criminal activity uh, involving mental health work. So I wanted to get Emily Wessel's take on that. Uh, the young woman's name, uh, Emily, is Judith Negron. What can you tell us about what you have found out about Judith Negron and this case around clemency? What can you tell us about that? It's such an interesting case, you know, I, I think, you know, what Judith was uh, convicted for was, uh, she had a 35-year prison sentence, I believe, for yeah. like almost a $200 million Medicare fraud scheme in Florida. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just, I mean, to me, being a mental health care worker, I mean, we are under such strict guidelines all the time. I mean, we, we talk about this, the testing that we have to undergo, the licensure, oh, yes. the things that the, the, the agencies have to go through, the compliance measures. It's unbelievable to me that this kind of situation could even go on for that long. So, yes. um, you know, so her sentence, you know, was, was quite strict considering what um, what she what she was convicted of, and it's it, I believe she served eight years before Trump started to look at her clemency situation. But what I found most interesting was that the reason Trump decided to grant her clemency wasn't because the Department of Justice really did its full vetting of her case. It was because uh, a, a friend of hers in prison, Alice Johnson, had been declared okay, clemency yes. like in 2018 and recommended it for her and Trump took this mm -hmm. woman's word on it and kind of went with it and to me I'm, I'm a little suspicious of the whole situation only because I mean I believe in clemency by all means I think that people can recover and change their lives and should be given the opportunity to to have redemption stories but I think that there's also a, a bureaucratic sort of um, system that that needs to go through for checks and balances. And those of us that have had that story, myself included, had to go through a whole lot to be able mm -hmm. to even uh, live a normal, somewhat normal life after after committing a crime. And and I just think that we all need to go through those same yeah. types of uh, vetting processes. Absolutely. Well, that's very fascinating. Alice Johnson, ladies and gentlemen, herself was granted clemency, I think, in 2018, you said? And, uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so she was serving a uh, time in jail, I believe, for another nonviolent drug offense. So speaking of that uh, issue right there, CAN DO is an acronym, ladies and gentlemen. It stands for Clemency for All Nonviolent Drug Offenders. It was founded by a woman named, um, I think her name was Amy Pova. Uh, she runs that organization, and she fights for clemency for 
uh, women in particular, but anyone that is serving a long-term uh, sentence, usually around drugs, but also if they're connected to a loved one that may himself or herself been dealing drugs. And some of the people that have been caught up in the system and serving long-term sentences, yeah. uh, they have formed a mission to uh, get their cases reviewed and uh, brought up for uh, possible clemency. And so uh, Amy Pova's uh, organization Can Do is um, partially credited for raising the awareness of cases like Judith Negron. So what you say is very fascinating, Emily, because we are in heavy election season, as I mm -hmm. highlighted at the beginning. And some people have pointed to the fact that this may be a product of the Kanye West and Kardashian <laughs> effect. <laughs> Uh, Kim was yeah. uh, heavily involved, and in, I believe, in the Alice Johnson uh, clemency. And so, uh, what are your thoughts on the political implications of what this, this this act by this president, who he actually, ladies and gentlemen, he freed about eleven people all at once, including Judith and uh, at least one or two other uh, women of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, what do you think that says about the the state of our politics right now, and what ultimately? he's trying to garner by granting these freedoms to this uh, young woman, Judith Negron. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I absolutely, specifically for nonviolent drug offenses, feel like there should be clemency options. And it, it is incredibly difficult to get your record cleared if you have had those kinds of cases. And, I, and I'm fully in support of nonprofit organizations that are advocating for the release, particularly people of color, particularly all of the prohibition of marijuana being, you know, released. Yeah. There's so many people that are serving sentences for, I mean, there are legal dispensaries now that are selling things, you know, marijuana, substances, mm -hmm. cannabis, things like this. And there are people sitting in jail for, for crimes for that exact same thing. And that's just, that, right. that, that, that inequality makes me nauseous. So yes. I do believe that there should be things in place that allow for people to get, um, to get out of prison and to get out of jail if they have, have served a, a time or if they've been vetted. Um, what's interesting to me about this situation is that Alice Johnson, I believe, appeared in the Super Bowl ad for Trump for his campaign. Oh yeah, I forgot so, about that, yeah. So that's kind of suspect to me a little bit, you know? I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of this story well enough to say anything in particular, but I, I, I notice things like that and, I, and yeah. I wonder about them. And, you know, and somebody who was able to look the other way, for me as a mental health professional, uh, you know, Medic Medicaid, Medicaid and Medicare are, you know, tax dollars. I mean, that's, that's a tricky one. And I feel like that should have gone through a little bit more vetting than a, than a sort of a nonviolent drug offense. I mean, that's Absolutely. a totally different offense. And right. um, not to say that she didn't deserve clemency. I, I'm not, a, I'm not in the position to make that decision, but I do mm -hmm. think that the vetting should be there. And as people who are paying taxes into these situations, I feel like we should have more information about it. If we're, mm -hmm. if we're going to see these kinds of releases being made and, you know, and the, and the whole Kim Kardashian thing, I mean, you know, celebrity has, uh, has pull in our country. That's part of, we know that's true. Um, and the, and that is a, certainly affecting the upcoming campaign. Um, so there's a lot of questions raised about this issue. Absolutely. And it also raises the issue about people who may not be fans of 45, who no matter what he does, he gets condemned and he receives criticism, even if he does something that's quote unquote good for the greater good of someone that is uh, in a position such as that. Uh, what does it say about the difficulty in sort of appreciating the gesture and the deed uh, as something more than transactional? Uh, sometimes it, it feels a little disingenuous. And so on its face, mm -hmm. you can't always just uh, just 
extend that kind of leniency towards someone who has done so much harm with his policies, uh, with yeah. his rhetoric. Uh, what, is, what does it say about the difficulty some people experience with giving him the win for doing something right? I mean, a lot of mental health professionals shy away from conversations about politics. Sure I, I grew up in D.C., so I don't feel like that's a luxury I can afford. I, I think that <laughs> I, you know, I was taught to have an opinion about things and to also have conversations with people with differing opinions so that I can be educated and see things from a global perspective. And that's one of the blessings of growing up in a federal city like D.C. and also becoming a clinician there in the, in the beginning of my career. And so, um, I, you know, I do have opinions on these things. And, and part of, you know, part of Trump's, um, you know, choices do sometimes seem transactional. When I doubt a political figure in any way, I tend to look at the people that surround them. And, mm -hmm. and I can see sort of, okay, maybe this person is the front man for a bigger decision. And so I look to see what is the collective doing and, and how are they shaping their decisions and what checks and balances are in place to help support them. And and so one of the things that troubles me about Trump's administration is they don't they don't seem to be on the same page a lot of the time. <laughs> they they right. really um, he kind of goes a little rogue. And, and you know, as a mm. clinician, I my first thought is, how is his mental health? You know, what is his family life? Is, is he feeling supported? Does he feel like he has to go out on a limb? You know, and not so much to question any diagnosis of his, which I, a lot of my colleagues have, uh -huh. I, I, wonder, yeah. I wonder more like, what is the support of his administration doing and how are they all doing and how are these decisions being made as a team? Because we have a democracy. We don't have a dictatorship. This is America. We're supposed to have a team of people making decisions. <laughs> and um, so when I feel like that's not happening, that's when I get a little concerned. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> oh, and you know what? It, it, it's one of those great unspokens because we have had mental health people on the show, Emily, talking about this issue and, you know, expressing concern about that, that so-called taboo third rail of a mental health professional talking about politics and talking <laughs> about the mental health of this guy. We have touched upon that issue. And so given mm -hmm. that, and like you said, we're not diagnosing the guy or we're not analyzing him from afar, but we're, we're commenting on something that he's done. But it, it is interesting and worth noting, Emily and ladies and gentlemen, that he granted clemency to people who have committed major crimes. I mean, mm -hmm. white collar crimes, crimes albeit, he, he uh, gave clemency to uh, Rob Blagojevich, who's a Democrat, but he tried to sell his mm -hmm. political seat during the Obama administration, and he got caught up in that. And so mm -hmm. it seems very suspect that the people he tends to also do these kind of things for are for people who are also guilty of conspiracy, uh, corruption. Yeah. Um, what do you think that does to the mental health of our society as a whole when we see everything sort of being upside down? It's like corruption is being rewarded ultimately by someone who's supposed to be standing on the side of justice. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think that we as a as a country are a little unsettled at the moment. I mean, it's a big shift between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. I mean, it was big enough shift for me to not even want to live in the city of DC anymore. That was my moment to leave. I was like, I'm moving. <laughs> I wow. gotta go. Okay. Um, you know, and, and, and it didn't really matter which side you were on. I've said this before. I mean, it, it really was just the uprooting of what felt like eight years of consistency to like this now administration that 
seems to be kind of going back and forth about a lot of things. And this isn't to question one side or the other's decision making. It's really more about collaboration. Mm -hmm. For me, I felt like there were other administrations. I lived in D.C. for almost 25 years. And so I lived through a lot of different administrations on, you know, both red and blue. And I feel like there was a lot more collaboration and consistency in other administrations than in this one. And it just felt like things were being uprooted really quickly. And and uh, just I do understand the need for change. And I know that people want to see, okay, we want to, the bureaucracy is slowing everything down and nothing's getting done. I've heard that a million times in DC. And in some areas, that's true. But some of those checks and balances also keep people safe. And when you have as many people as we have in this country, and as many different states that don't have the same laws as the federal, and all that kind of um, sort of uh, just imbalance, yeah. You have to take a little bit of time to make decisions that are going to affect the whole. Mm-hmm. And and so that's my concern about this administration. And, and and I these clemency decisions aren't any different than any other decision. They they seem to have been made quickly and yeah. possibly with um, with advisement from people that were not in any position to make those suggestions, wow. you know, meaning like the Kim Kardashians or the Kanye West, you know, mm-hmm. um, I would, I would have rather seen a recommendation from like maybe a judge or a lawyer or a nonprofit wow. advocate or an activist or somebody that has some, some type of foot in that issue versus somebody who has celebrity status. I would feel more confident in these decisions if that was the case. Absolutely. Well, this program is called Psychotic Bum School. I'm DJ Rome, and we're joined by clinical counselor Emily Wessel out of California. And we're breaking down these uh, latest moves by this current administration uh, who has recently granted clemency to a woman named Judith Negrone, uh, who was uh, sentenced for 35 years for uh, Medicare fraud of uh, billing uh, mental health services. So uh, she's now free, Emily. And uh, I think that's something that we can continue to uh, keep an eye on as we continue to go forward with this administration. So speaking of DC, I know you used to live there. And uh, by the way, uh, I just recently also saw a story uh, knowing that you also have roots in Dayton, Ohio. I saw that uh, in College Hoops, the Dayton Flyers actually won over the weekend. Yes, <laughs> so, they did. <laughs> oh, oh, so you have been following, huh? Uh, how big of a college yeah. basketball fan have you been? <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm actually not, but my grandmother and my grandfather who lived in Dayton their whole lives were huge basketball fans, college basketball fans. It was, you know, just their thing. And um, wow. so I still keep an eye on the scores just because it makes me think of them. <laughs> oh, wow. It was totally random that I saw that. I wasn't even planning on discussing that with you today, but I'm like, oh, look, Dayton did well. They, 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 I think they're <laughs> ranked number five in their division. So uh, Dayton is winning. And I, I'm sure that warms the heart of people like Emily Wessel. But you were talking about yeah. DC. Uh, Emily Wessel, Go-Go Music is now the official sound of Washington, D.C. What can you tell us about this latest bill that's been signed in the great city of your former residence, Miss Emily Wessel? Um, yeah, I mean, Go-Go is D.C. I mean, it is the it is the music. It is the, um, I mean, anybody who's lived in D.C. for a few years, who has spent any time with DC natives has at least been exposed to go-go music. And many music enthusiasts who never lived in DC know a lot about it just because that it, it has that, um, that kind of energy behind it. And um, there was quite a lot of, uh, you know, to do around this issue in the last year because the hashtag don't mute DC movement, That's which right. was, um, you know, a really, um, it, it was a response to the, to, it was a response to a, a cell phone 
store that played go-go music for about 40 years on Chuck Brown Way, right by the Howard you know, University and the Howard Theater. And it's a very historical place in D.C. And um, anybody who's lived in D.C. knows that that corner always plays go-go. It's just always kind of done that. It's a Metro PCS store. And they told, it, they told them to shut it off because the luxury apartments across the street didn't want it anymore. And it was a whole thing. And, um, you know, it, it, there was an uprising in D.C. And this happened, you know, the last year or two. And um, I was home for some of it, but mostly I was hearing from friends out here just what was happening. And I think that this um, this response, I, I believe it was D.C. Council member uh, Kenyon McDuffie who first introduced the legislation about the D.C. go-go movement, like the music being the official music of D.C. But it was, Mar um, it was Muriel Bowser, the mayor, who actually signed it into legislation last That's week. Right. And uh, and, you know, go-go becoming official music of D.C. and the government is not, I mean, it's always going to be the official music of D.C. Like, enthusiasts, like, lovers of music, people who love D.C., we didn't need the, gov the government or the mayor to sign anything for us to feel like it was the music of D.C. Right. I think that was already naturally how we felt. Um, but what I think from somebody who was an education, a provider of dance and music education in the schools for so many years, which is what I did before I was a clinician, I, I think this is really unique because now that it's official, right. people that are into go go music can actually access grant funding and different types of um support so that this can be a more i mean you can go to school for jazz music you can go to school for classical music but you can't really learn much about go go in a school and now maybe that can change hmm. wow now th that's an angle i hadn't considered now as being a, a former dc native as you are um it's no secret how gentrification has also hit that neighborhood and that's Big the reason why this whole uh, thing developed in the first place is that the, the, the new shifts in the uh, demographics of the community have made it such that uh, the newcomers don't feel comfortable with what's been long established in that area. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, I mean, I don't mean to put your, your business out there, but you are not African-American. You're not African-American. No. You know, you, you, you're just a sister from another mister to us. You know what I mean? <laughs> And so, Thank you. Truthfully, uh, you are down for the cause, no doubt. Um, how much of that do you think is a relief to the people? You know, we we could speak on so many levels on this, just in terms of uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the mental health implications, implications of people just understanding that their their sound and the, the soul of the area, the soul of the community, is not being swept away by the 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 onrush and emergence of the new look of the community. Uh, how much of a relief do you think this really is to the people of DC in that area? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm a white girl that grew, grew up with a family from Dayton. Um, and we moved to DC when I was about 10 years old. And so I grew up in the suburbs of DC and in DC proper. And so it has changed a lot tremendously over the years. I mean, it was probably, I think it was 91 when we first moved to that area. So, um, you know, there, there's so much history in DC of, uh, you know, white people living there and then the great white flight to the suburbs. And then, you know, sort of the urban communities and the migrant communities and the black communities being pushed into the city for, for jobs. And there's so much history there. And then now it's like the white people are coming back in because they want to live in the city. And it, it's just, there's so, you know, that's, that's, I'm doing it a gross injustice in that small phrasing, but um, mm. there's so much pain and history and and just frustration there um, because people are being pushed out that have had the same home since you know three or four generations, um, and there is a cultural heritage. 
for people of color in DC that's really special and it is being swept away. I mean, it saddens me to admit that, but I think yeah. it's being swept away almost so fast that we can't stop it at this point. And that's happening in a lot of cities and a lot of urban areas in the country right now. Um, I can only really speak to DC, but what I think is interesting about this particular bill being signed into law is at least the government is saying, we can't necessarily stop the gentrification for multiple reasons that we probably don't have time to go into today, mm -hmm. but we can at least make sure that the music doesn't ever get forgotten. And you know, Howard University is not going anywhere. Howard Theater, there's a whole history there of how it got, you know, uh, reopened. And um, I, I won't get into it, but the people that were originally trying to get it open didn't actually get the money. And then a contractor came in and did it in a different way. And a lot of people feel like it, it, it did lose some of its history in that transaction. And I think that this, this was a win in that, because there's been a lot of losses in that area for DC residents. Yeah. Um, you know, where there have been people coming in and getting contracts because they know somebody. Um, and, and this is just an opportunity for, for, I think the mayor to say, well, you know what, at least, at least I can do this, <laughs> you know, at least right. I can say go, go is the official music of DC. It is a, a music that came from black people in DC. It has its roots in funk and soul. Um, and it definitely, um, has, soul to it and I think that by at least putting this into a law that history won't be erased with all the other things that are being swept away absolutely so at that point Mayor Muriel Bowser is who Emily Wessel is referring to and I quote she says this is a musical genre that originated here and we want to make sure it lives on for generations to come that's Mayor Muriel Bowser well, long live go, go uh, Emily Wessel. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts. This is Dr. Chase Moore, the author of The Emotion, The Tree in Me, your guide to discussing emotional health and wellness with your children. You are listening to DJ Rome on the Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. Don't pick my apples. Don't pick my peaches. Leave my tree alone.
We are back. Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome, and I am very excited to have this guest back in the house with us. Uh, he's not only a good friend, but the brother is extremely talented. He has an amazing project out there right now called The Emotion, The Tree and Me. Uh, it's probably one of his, uh, uh, let's say, his inaugural uh, introductions to the world, to the planet. This is some good resources in this book, y'all. So I want y'all to check it out, but I want y'all to hear it straight from here. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, the good brother, Dr. Chase Moore. Dr. Moore, are you there? I am here, good brother, uh, DJ Rome. Thank you for having me back on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Man, it's always a blast and a half to have you here. You know how we do. Well, you've been a busy, busy cat, to say the least the emotion, the tree, and me. Good brother. Uh, how long have you been working on this amazing project? First of all, can you tell us what it is and what it's all about? And uh, how'd you get the inspiration to put this together? Wow, wow, that's, man, I, that, I got, there's a lot to unpack. And so I guess okay. I'll start with, I've been writing this book my whole life. And, um, you know, the inspiration came from the fact that I really feel like I'm in a good place. Uh, I'm still growing as a person. I'm still growing as a husband, as a father, and as a professional. Um, I'm still growing in my spiritual life, and it's been a journey. And so this book came about from that journey and knowing that um, and really learning about uh, how I've grown. So I, I use the analogy of a tree to really represent how we grow as people emotionally. And the book is geared at children as well as their parents because as you know our roots um that's our family members that's that's where we come from and so in the book i talk about how you cannot truly know yourself 
until you know the people who love you, or the people who influence you, the people who are around you. And until you know them, you, you, you can't know yourself. So um, this book is just my manifestation of, of my life and how you can bring about positive change through learning and, about yourself and the people who influence you. Absolutely. Well, uh, I want to talk to you about it because you said you've been writing this book basically your whole life, right? And I know, exactly. I, I know a couple of authors, um, Chase, and they have equally shared with me that their life's work that is becoming more public now actually started uh, very much in their formative years. And so this is very much a, a lifelong endeavor. So what would you say were, um, when you know you had to write this book, when was it crystal clear to you that it's time right now? I've been sort of uh, putting the, uh, the, the foundation together, putting the pieces together, but when did you finally know that this was ready to really hit the ground and really run with this? Do you remember what that moment was like for you? I do, I do remember. Um, you know, I was sitting in a meeting and I was listening to a presenter and some of the things that uh, they were saying really resonated with me. And this presenter was amazing. However, I knew at that time it was just coming out of me um, and it was something that I couldn't hold in anymore. So I just immediately started to write. And I wrote the initial part of it, the, the poem which uh, inspired this, I wrote it right then and there. And I remember oh, people wow. looking at me like I was taking just some, some vivacious notes and but really what was coming out was just um, me putting it all together, you know, and, and my heart just spilling out on the paper. And I know it sounds, you know, really romanticized, but that's kind of how it was. The initial prompt for this was um, just me putting my thoughts on paper uh, in the form of art, in the form of a poem. Um, and that came about just through, you know, me having kids and, and seeing them grow and go through things and thinking like, hey, I could really support my own kids by just letting them know what I've experienced. Um, mm -hmm. And in doing that, you know, in doing that, uh, DJ Ron, what I found was like, it's hard for parents to communicate that knowledge to their children because we don't have a shared language. We don't have shared experiences. And so what I was blessed to do was write a poem that really creates a shared verbal knowledge base for parents and children so that they can communicate on the same level. They can have the same reference points when they're talking about these emotional concepts. Mm -hmm. And so it just came out, you know, it just started to flow. And I, I felt a, a passion for helping, you know, supporting my own children and, and dealing with what they deal with because of uh, our history and our genetics and our experiences. And then also helping parents who, you know, they aren't, professionals. They aren't counselors or psychologists or people who work with children all the time. And they, they you know, they want to help their children too, but they don't have the, the knowledge base or the tools to speak with their children about their lives and their emotions and how they can, they can grow. Right. How about that? You know, in uh, political circles, uh, Dr. Moore, they talk about having those kitchen table conversations and politicians who are really good on the stump the, 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 the really good retail politicians go door to door and they really try to campaign for people's votes. And we're in a heavy election season right here. So when I think about kitchen table conversations in the context of the emotion, the tree and me, there is something that 
is perhaps, I don't know, how unique is this to the black community where the, these are certain things that are considered taboo? We don't talk about certain issues, whether it be money, whether it be our painful experiences. Uh, how much of that is uh, really unique and distinct within the black community, you think? You know, I, I think it's very prevalent. And obviously, I won't speak for the entire black community or a community of people of African descent. But I know just from my research and, you know, working with uh, with children uh, for over 10 years now, that when you have different traumas that are historical and you have different wounds uh, that come from us being in a country where we have a, a very rich history of oppression and uh, systemic racism, and prejudice. It, when you have these factors, it is only natural to try to cover up those wounds, and you don't want anybody to touch them. And so I think historically, um, with our history here in America, we really shy away from addressing those traumas. And in the book, I talk about clean pain and dirty pain. Right. Clean pain is the pain that you uh, that you use when you go in and you dig in there and you dig out those you know the, all of those sores and you clean it out and you heal and it's it's painful um, but you end up being able to move forward in a way that allows you to grow from it right and the dirty pain is the pain that we use when we try to cover up our wounds and we don't want people to know why we're truly hurting or we don't know why we're truly hurting but uh the symptoms of our trauma and the symptoms of our hurt end up perpetuating the problems and it goes on for generation after generation and so you know for me you know just to kind of get personal um within my family i have um you know people who suffer with significant anxiety uh people who have been through depression and these are people within my close family. So inevitably, DJ Rome, this is going to affect me. This is going to affect how I shape and view the world. And with that, I did not want to pass that on to my children. I wanted to give them insight into their history, into their family, into me as a person. When I come home from work or from doing something, you know, why I behave a certain way, you know, and why you may uh, understand things in a certain way. Um, and so when we give that type of insight, it allows us to grow, but it is very painful. And so to go back to your original question, how much is this, you know, how, how prevalent is this in the, in the African-American community? Mm -hmm. I think it's very prevalent because, yeah. um, you know, we tend to build these, these, uh, these facades, these personas around us to protect our, you know, our wounds, our wounds and insecurities, and we d end up not addressing it. We end up, uh, you know, passing off trauma as culture, you know, oh, that's just how we do things, you know, and, and this book is designed to break through that uh, facade of culture and get to the trauma so that we can heal and move forward as a people and not be limited by our 400 years of trauma <laughs> in, in wow. you know, in this country. Absolutely. You said something really deep. I wrote it down as you were saying it. Passing off trauma as culture. Ladies and gentlemen, do you yes. realize how deep that is? Passing off trauma as if it's just a part of the, 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 the very fabric of us. <laughs> Can you, you, you made a distinction, I think, in your book, even the, the distinction between trauma versus just a painful emotional experience. Uh, can you articulate that yes. distinction for us? Well, 
the difference is, is trauma is something that is too much, too soon, too fast, and it overwhelms your ability to cope with it or deal with it. And so you go into survival mode. This is, this is not using your higher order brain. This is not you being calm and making this decision on how you want to respond to this situation. This is a deep wound or hurt. And, it, and sometimes what happens is when we respond in a situation, instead of saying, you know what, I, you know, that was me working through a place of hurt, we try to double down on it and say, no, that's just who I am. I'm a person who I'm zero to 100 real quick. I just have a quick attitude. And, you know, I'm just a, you know, hot hit. No, 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 that's not you. That's, that's trauma. That's you, you know, acting impulsively. And so, you know, to some extent, we have to name it to tame it. And I, and I feel like, because we don't really recognize what it is, we right. just go with it and we, you know, we try to make the best of it and we use our wonderful heritage of culture and art to make it sound good and look good. But it's really something that doesn't perpetuate, does, does not support our growth and our relationships. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is designed to heal and support the, the average family, the average father, the average mother, the average grandmother, the average person and working with their child and working with themselves to have a multi-generational conversation about who they are and how these concepts of who they think they are have been built because they've been built for a reason. Right. And there's a lot of shared experiences where there is uh, genealogy or just in the environment. You uh, said also a few minutes ago, uh, when you talk about those who love us versus those who influence us. And you kind of make a distinction like maybe those aren't necessarily one and the same. Uh, How would you characterize those differences that you laid out uh, in what you said a few minutes ago? Because in the book, you make it pretty clear that the ones that love us and influence us are sometimes distinct individuals. Can you talk about that a little bit too? Yeah, of course. And, you know, this is something that, you know, I think that as a community, we need to to really understand because it takes a village to raise a child, and that is a you know that is a that is a saying that I think you know maybe Hillary Hillary Clinton adopted from you know a lot of African culture and African heritage, but it was popularized here. Um, and what that really means is this: we cannot be everything to our children, and sometimes we have to understand our limitations and have people in their lives who can bring them different things, you know, and, and who you trust. But I think we have to make sure that we don't want our kids to, we don't want to be the ceiling for our children. Right. And so I, I fully recognize that me as a parent, there are things that there are places where I have limitations and I want my children to have access to great teachers, great people, great communities so that they can learn and grow beyond me, because I have my own limitations. And, no, and sometimes um, when you come from an environment uh, like, you know, us as uh, people of African descent, particularly here in America, we have closed off so much. We are no longer a people where the village raises, raises the child. We are um, very much um, protective of our children to the fact that we only want to influence them. Um, but what we don't understand is that that's not going to be the case. The case is that we live in an age where um, our children have access to technology and the primary culture of a child can be the internet and media. And so we need to be aware that 
we need to have influence over our children and not just the media and not just um, the content they consume. And the way we do that is expanding their circle and giving them access to people who are going to love them in a healthy way. Hmm. And what I I mean by love them in a healthy way is love them not because of their trauma, right? And so um, the example I like to use is that the crack, the, the person who's addicted to drugs or crack or alcohol, they love alcohol, but that's not a healthy form of love, right? It's coming from a particular place of pain or need. And as parents and people, loved ones, we can love our children in an unhealthy way, can come from an unhealthy root. And so what I um, attempt to do in the book is create a conversation about what a healthy form of love is. Because a parent can say, well, I love you. Well, is it a healthy form of love? You know, if you love this, you know, if you love your child when they're, you know, behaving a certain way, or if you love a child when they are successful in this manner, or they don't do something, or they help you and enable you, right? And so we really start to really break down what is a healthy form of love. Um, And I think this is critical because when you have a healthy form of love and you have a healthy understanding of love, it allows you to be in relationships. It allows you to do the things that we as uh, African-American community need, which is, you know, build families, build communities. And when we, so all of these issues that we have problems with in our community, um, we have to get back to the root, which is what is a healthy form of love? And so I, I try to discriminate between that. Absolutely. This is KCWG, thetruth.com. Name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and we're listening to the incomparable Dr. Chase Moore. He's here to discuss his latest book, The Emotion, The Tree, and Me, now available on Amazon Books. Now, uh, don't let me let you get away without a, you you have a book signing or book release coming up um, in a few days, so uh, I want to make sure we talk about that, but you just made, man, you, you nailed something right there because when people in our line of work, Dr. Moore, I mean, we work with kindergarten through 12th grade and sometimes, you know, young adults as well. So when we see them engaging in their relationships and learning how to feel out the world in ways in which they're making some very adult choices, but still using sort of a, uh, a adolescent frame of, of learning and uh, perspective, they have a hard time distinguishing like versus love. And to the point where they don't understand the mm-hmm. depths of it. And if they only did, Dr. Moore, they would realize that some of us aren't ready. A lot of adults aren't ready. Because I think you said in your book somewhere that love is about accountability or responsibility or building people up. It's not exactly. about the, the temporary uh, transactional kind of, so long as you do for me, you make me feel good. Uh, then I'll love you so long. But if, if you, I think you said if the ice cream falls on the ground, you're not going to want that ice cream no more, right? So, <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? So yes. it, it's, 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 love is supposed to be permanent. It's unconditional, right? Isn't that essentially what you're saying? Yes, definitely. And so, you know, I believe the analogy that you're referencing is I say the difference between like and love is love has, um, love has particular features that you must adhere to if you want to truly say that you love someone. And so, you know, like can and will dissipate, right? And so I use the example, if you, you know, you say you love ice cream, but if that ice cream falls on the ground, you're not picking that ice cream up and you're not going to try to repair it and, and eat it. However, if 
someone in your family falls or they they are they hurt themselves or they fall you know down with the illness right you don't throw them away like you would ice cream right because so love has a particular responsibility um and love you know requires that you um you you give into it it's a reciprocal relationship and children are not too young to start learning these concepts about love because as you know with the students we deal with that's why a lot of the times we see them is they they are perceiving a lack of reciprocity in the relationships with people they they interact with or yeah. they perceive they're perceiving that their love is not unconditional um you know if i get home and i have a d i don't feel the love right and so right. i think that you know it's, it's not too early to start teaching them how to recognize those forms uh the different forms of love so that they can learn and, and adapt to uh, situations where it's not healthy. Um, and so at some point, our students are going to have to be cultural brokers. They're going to have to be teachers to their, to their uh, parents sometimes and teach people how to treat you, you know, um, and vice versa. So that's why this book is kind of a multi-generational conversation. It's not a book that, you know, uh, you send your student up into, in the room to read. It's a book that you guys read together and there are questions and prompts for conversation that, um, you know, the kids can ask of their parents and the parents yeah. can ask of their kids. Yeah, I noticed that. And I, and I love how you do that because I, I view it as very empowering to students to be able to give them the language and the vocabulary to, to speak to their, their parents and vice versa for parents to speak to their children, especially in the area of affection. Um, I love how you broke down uh, how you can let somebody know that you don't like the way they are showing affection to you. Now, what a gift, Dr. Moore, what a gift to give to a child to be able to give them the, the vocabulary, the language, the wherewithal to communicate their truth in a moment like that, where it would from the outside be perceived as being very bold and you know somebody talking out of their face, <laughs> but asserting their, their comfort levels and their boundaries I love that about, and then you talk about reciprocity. Um, I was thinking about a love collection agency as one example. It's like the person that you're, you're hoping that will reciprocate that love that you talk about, what happens when that reciprocity disappears and then you can't get it back? And that's what you're talking about also with these relationships that don't uh, pan out the way our, our clients would prefer them to. Uh, the reciprocity piece, is, is sorely lacking. Oh my God, you touch on all this stuff in this book called Emotion, The Tree and Me by Dr. Chase Moore. Uh, my brother, I am so excited for you. I am reading this book as we speak and I'm getting a lot out of it. Uh, what can you tell us about, um, <laughs> what can you tell us about uh, your, your plans for this book? I know you're gonna have a rollout coming up in a few days. And uh, what's your plans for this book? I'm really excited for you. What, what, what's next for you? Well, you know, I'm on February 27th at uh, six o'clock at the Underground Bookstore in Oak Park. I'll be having a book signing and I will, it will also be a book reading where I'll be reading uh, from the book and posing some of the questions from the book as well to parents and students. And the long-term plan for the book is really to be able to put this book in front of people, in front of parents, teachers, students, so that they have a tool, as you said, as you so greatly art articulated, so that they can have a tool and the vocabulary and the voice to communicate and open up these conversations. Because the truth is, um, mental health and the, the 
the lack of wellness is very prevalent and it's omnipresent in our field. And I would like to give parents and families the tools to work through it. Um, I consider myself a um, more of a, a, like a, I would say a spiritual Pan-Africanist kind of healer approach to uh, mental health, which means that I'm able to roam and weave through the different types of psychology and support and counseling that works for the individual. And what I see for many students, not just students of color, but all students, that they benefit from growth and health in the family. And so what I find sometimes is that uh, through traditional measures of um, counseling, we really focus at the individual level. (laughs) And um, I know within our culture, but like what I'm seeing is across cultures, people benefit from support at the the family and cultural level as well. And that's what this book is designed to do. So um, to answer your question, I want to get this out and kind of get this philosophy out that we heal together as a group, as a community. And individual healing and individual uh, therapy is great, but it's always best to find the medicine from within, within the home, within yourself, within your community, because that's where a lot of this starts. Right. The Emotion, The Tree in Me by Dr. Chase Moore, available now on Amazon Books. And you can catch him at a book signing on February 27th at the Underground Bookstore. And I believe that is in uh, Sacramento, Elk Grove, to be exact. It's in Sacramento, yes. Thank you. Sacramento. Okay, I'm going to make sure I put up that uh, address when we uh, hit this with the live stream. But uh, shouts out to you as the author. And uh, before we let you go, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the beautiful illustrations in the book. Uh, Are those, well, whose illustrations were those done by? You know, um, a lot of it was just, um, you know, me on, uh, you know, on the internet looking at different ways to create things. And then I had, um, you know, the good fortune of having, uh, you know, some friends who kind of were able to bring that to light, you know, so I I really wanted to represent, um, I really wanted to represent my, my inspiration, which were, you know, my kids, but particularly my, uh, my daughter, Rhea, who's referenced in the book. So, yes. Yes, beautiful. And uh, the way they were selected, they they really uh, drive home the point. You know, it's you, you know we we deal with learning challenges, Dr. Moore. So anytime you have an integration of auditory and visual working together, as you do with the the beautiful illustrations in this book, the emotion, the tree, and me, it really helps drive the point home. Well, uh, my brother, I am so excited for you. I can't thank you enough for being here. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, you know, I think the best way to reach me is at panafricanwellness.com, panafricanwellness.com. And that is my website. Uh, It's something that uh, I've been working on uh, for a while now. Uh, It is uh, just a a place where you can, you know, gather my my thoughts and ideas and reach me and contact me. Uh, Much success, continue to uh, success to you. And I appreciate you reaching out to to people like me. Um, And thank you, brother. Oh, man, it's, it's an honor, man. This is some great stuff. The Emotion of the Tree and Me by Dr. Chase Moore. Get it now on Amazon. So this is KCWG, thetruth.com. Name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. That was the good brother, Dr. Chase Moore. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back after this. This is Amber Ojeda, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on kcwgthetruth.com. 
the best internet radio station on the planet. Well, we're moving on We are back, KCWG, thetruth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and I am very, very proud to welcome back this next panel. We just had a very, very sad transition in the world of entertainment. The one and only Janae Dubois of uh, television and movie fame has uh, left this mortal plane, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Janae Dubois. So uh, to help us pay tribute to her, I am very proud to welcome back these two incomparable journalists. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, Miss Janine Cogney and Juliana Bowden. Juliana, Janine, are you there? Yes, absolutely. Hey, Rome. What is going on? How in the world are y'all doing? Hey, just happy to be on Psychotic Bump School once again. Thank you for having me. It's always a joy. Absolutely. Always Thank you joy. for having me to talk about this wonderful lady who made such an impact. Well, let's talk about that impact. Let's start with you, Janine. Uh, what was the impact of the life and career of Miss Janae Dubois? Then I want to hear from Juliana Bowden. Okay. Well, I, I feel like Janae, which Janae, I don't know if it's Janae or Jeanette, but right. she she did the most with a, a, a small role. I don't want to say it, it was small because she was a character on Good Times, and which was about the Evans family growing up in Chicago and the Chicago projects. And it, it was illuminating to a lot of people. For us, it reflected a certain segment of Black life that hadn't been shown on television before. And to that end, you see a struggling family. And here comes the neighbor, and she is fantastic she's sassy she's sexy she's funny she has a smile that could light up a million rooms and we identify with her she she is a character with lona woods who has bloomed where she has been planted in the hood and she's making it all work i looked forward to seeing her i couldn't wait till she busted through that door because she was beautiful glowing blackness Come on. Uh, you know, Bye, y'all. <laughs> hey. Yep. Hey, wow. y'all. Hey, y'all. The, the, the or, ooh-wee. That's Rona how Barrett she would go through the door. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Often wonder why they never gave her a spinoff, Juliana. I mean, you remember George Jefferson and Louise started off on All in the Family, right, Janine? So, Juliana, uh, talk to us about 
your impressions of the career and life of Janae Dubois. You made quite an impression, right? Man, I can't even describe in enough words the gratefulness that I feel for her as a woman because Janine, when she said she was sassy, sexy, and whatnot, what Janine is hitting on is something deeper than just her being appealing, you know, to look at just for the sake of enjoying some acting. There is a way that um, seeing someone's image in a TV show or on the screen or even watching someone perform, it humanizes people in a way and affects the way that people... I, I, I heard someone say the other day how somebody... The, the impression that someone has of you from a screen can affect the way someone treats you on the street. True. And that means... And by, by you, I mean Black women. Mm-hmm. How Black women are seen by others is something that has been um, somewhat of a challenge. Yeah. No, excuse me. It's been, it's been an even mortal challenge for Black women to exist in the world and to have negative stereotypes precede us before we even walk in the room. Right. And every time you have uh, an image of a black woman that is strong and positive, it makes life a little bit easier when the rest of us might bust through anybody's door. I don't know if that makes the type of sense that I would like it to. Mm -hmm. All I'm saying is the way people saw her allowed them to see us. Mm. A little bit That's right. I, I totally agree. I mean, in my notes, I wrote that she was peak blackness. You know, she was. <laughs> yeah, she it, she hey, was peak, peak black aspirational. She's peak blackness and peak femininity at the same time at a time yes. in the world that wants to deny femininity and blackness even coexist in the same skin. Right. Wow. Really? Well, let's and she talk- has I mean, so much heart a- as a character. You know, right. she, she was gossipy and sassy, but you saw her heart and her humanity as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. you know, that- in, I met her in real life okay. and Talk about that. I didn't want at the time the time that I met her in real life um I had been working for a few years for a major Hollywood entity I don't want to say that on air necessarily and I was at an award show nominations party you know she's um gotten some nominations and accolades and won a few things in her career as well she should and she was sitting there next uh, she she was sitting there actually by herself someone had just got up to go get her a drink it appears and I looked and I was smiling and she saw me looking at her and I just smiled I waved I was like hey I don't want to bother you she said Girl, how you doing? Sit down. <laughs> and when she said that, she said, I didn't want to be goofy. Like, 
Oh my God, Winona just hollered at me. This is so cool right. because she's 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 Jeanette Dubois. Say Winona Woods, mm-hmm. but it is Winona Woods. So Come there was something. Right. It's but it, but there's something in 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 me that um it was you know two things. If you work in Hollywood for quite a while, you you know you don't get phased by seeing people who are famous here and there because that's part of the it's it's just part of the work that you do. That's right. But she was a lot more than she, because of the reasons that uh, uh, Janine and I just described uh, as a black woman. There was this um, deep thanks I felt for her, and to say to and all I said to her, I said, you know, all I could do is thank you for every time I see you on a screen you just make us look so good and thank you. Uh, and she's like, oh, you know, she starts, <laughs> and she, so she asked me, what did I do? And we talked for a moment and she was so engaging. She had, I could say the same thing about her that people say about Bill Clinton. When, you know, you meet him, he makes you feel like you're the only one in the room kind of thing, yeah. you know? And well, you know what, gosh, I, 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 I would also say that the smile that lights up the screen, it'll warm your heart more in person when you would see that smile because at that time, you're seeing the smile of Jeanette Dubois that Walona Woods only got to borrow for a short time. Wow. <laughs> smile on Jeanette, that smile on Jeanette was real. And because she was a giving person with other creatives her passing has um resonated with uh, a level of pain that's very personal for a lot of people mm-hmm. some folks don't realize that she was a co-founder of the pan african film festival now in its 28th year that made my job in Los An- juliana in, I, I am so shocked that i did in not los angeles that. i did not know that well her co-founders uh babu and danny glover mm. The wow. three of them represent something that is a beacon of light and hope. Absolutely. For not only for not only black creatives, but for anyone telling stories that illuminate black people in a positive way, in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Jeanette said a couple of years ago in the interview, I heard her say, it's one of the biggest festivals in the world now so much so that it's not just not just blacks but everybody's here everybody wants to be involved with the pan-african and it has bloomed in such a way that the academy uh, itself has an official designation you know that when films come through there there's a certain type of uh nod or cachet that the Motion Picture Academy gives to such films. I, I won't get too deep into the woods on on that, mm-hmm. but um, if a film festival has been around for a number of years and it uh, produces and introduces the world to a certain number of uh, of uh, pieces of work continuously that end up getting Oscars and you know further accolades and whatnot the academy deems it like uh, i cannot think of what the word is but it becomes like an, an official like affiliate of the motion picture academy which the pan-african film festival certainly is one of the most recognized in in the world and who do we have to thank for a lot of that come on 
Miss Dupont. Wow. That's amazing. That's awesome. I I understand. I mean, she was like consummate professional because she was also a songwriter, an incredible singer, oh. a, a dancer, apparently. And I also read that she founded um, an acting academy as well on the East Coast to to train young actors. So she was really devoted to bringing people along and devoted to the arts and to African-American cultural excellence at a, at a bunch of different levels. Mm-hmm. Oh, she, she was a true philanthropist at heart. Do y'all remember uh, finding out for the first time that it was her voice singing, moving on up on the Jeffersons? Can anybody remember what that was like when they found out it was, man, that's Janae Dubois from Good Times? <laughs> I was tripping well, off of that. It's I, like, this woman's unstoppable. I, Go ahead. I actually remember as a child when I heard that song, the voice sounded familiar. And I, and I did mm-hmm. wonder at some point, is that her? Because I'm like, this woman sounds just like Lady from Good Times. Mm-hmm. And I saw the credits, and I remember not being surprised at all. Right. Because because the voice was so familiar. And I guess you know, I didn't know she could com- sing because she she never sang on Good Times. So the fact that she was singing and doing it so well is like, man, this this give this woman a, a recording contract. Uh, did she have any time on stage, Broadway? Anybody know more about her background prior to television and during the course of her career? How much of that was spent outside of television on the big screen and on possibly the stage? Uh, anybody have any background on that? Well, the way I understand it is that the producers of Good Times did discover her in a show um, in Broadway called The Hot L Baltimore. Baltimore, which was a very popular show about um, the denizens of a, of a cheap hotel. It was a hotel, Baltimore, and the, the neon on the E had died. So it was called the Hot L Baltimore. And um, I remember it from the early 70s because there were a lot of commercials about it on TV. Now, I don't remember what her specific role was, but yes, she she did several stage roles and she, you know, she was well known in that milieu before she was tapped to come to television. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was thinking about what you were saying. She's saying hot L and the E had burned off. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to picture <laughs> that. It's like, that's crazy. I have a moment too. This isn't about Janae though, but when Juliana was talking about how she met her and just sort of being, for the lack of a better term, because like, you know, Janine, I know you're on the, uh, in the South now, but when you were in California, I'm sure you remember this with your days at Billboard and all that. We don't get starstruck too often, right? I mean, exactly. We, it just doesn't hit us like that because we, we we're in it and we're of it to a certain degree. But I remember a time, y'all remember a store called Music Plus? Yay. Hey, mm. there you go. Mm. Record stuff. Record stuff. Record stuff. I was working Rekistow. at a record <laughs> called Music Plus. And uh, I had the privilege of meeting three celebrities. Uh, one was Emmanuel Lewis. Remember the TV show Webster? Oh, my God. Yeah. Met him. Do you remember Different Strokes starring Gary Coleman? <laughs> oh, <Duh>. Yep. <laughs> and then okay. this, one, this one was what first came to mind, uh, Juliana. Uh, I was yes. at, on the, the back then they had cassettes and 12 inch singles and vinyl and all that, as you know, and the cassette wall was lined up against the window. 
that pretty much lined the, the length of the store. So I see this woman in the cassette section and she's picking up cassettes and putting them down, picking up cassettes and putting them down. And me being the customer service guru that I is, I went over and said, hey, how are you, how you doing? Welcome to Music Plus, blah, blah, blah. And then I started talking to her and her voice instantly was familiar to me, instantly. And then I kept listening to her and she kept speaking. I said, hold up are you Danielle Spencer? She's like, yeah, but this, this one right here is, who's on this song? Who's, wh what is this about? Is this any good? And I was like, man, I'm talking to D from what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I was just really, really tripping that she was so down to earth, so accessible. And at that time, I knew that she was all into her veterinary career at that time. So I knew she was just doing fine, but it was just a blast to meet her in person. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you had such a similar experience with Janae Dubois. She sounded like she was really down to earth. I loved all those roles you were talking about with good times and her sassiness and her spirit and her spunk, uh, giving it to James Evans. It was just such a great counterpoint on that show. What I, for what she represented in terms of her, her, you know, just lighting up a room as she walks in, as you talked about, what did it do for single black women, if anything? She adopted Penny on that show and highlighted an issue that at that time, heretofore, may not have gotten the kind of attention that it otherwise would have had it not been for the popularity of that show and the emergence of a little baby Janet Jackson. Uh, talk to us about what the character that Janae Dubois played on Good Times, what did that do for Black woman's status as a provider, leader, backbone of the community? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Let's go to Janine first and then Juliana. Well, I, I would say it was a, a turning point in her character arc, first of all, because it showed her willing to take on motherhood. If you recall, uh, the character of Penny was actually the daughter of another woman played by um, uh, Chip. Um, Chip Fields. Oh, I'm that's forgetting right. her. Yeah, Chip Fields. That's right. And, um, you know, she was she, <laughs> she was suffering abuse. Um, and so uh, Wilona took took over. And this is something that people in the African-American community are entirely familiar with raising their, their cousin's baby, their sister's baby, their brother's baby, mm. that, you wow. know, um, you know, or your, your grandbaby, you know. And so this just confirmed this as a single woman, a young single woman, we saw her dating life as well. She made right. some, some sacrifices to, to raise Penny, but she, as a character, always had a lot of heart. And I think it was interesting because there was one, um, or maybe there were a few episodes, but the one I saw most recently had to do with her um, dealing with educating Penny about the birds and bees, about oh, yes. sex, and what was the right age. Mm -hmm. Exactly, the stomach mumps. <laughs> and and that was really interesting because we always saw Wilona as with it, um, liberated, you know, uh, contemporary, fr free um, in her sense of herself and sexuality. And then she had a really conservative values when it came to wanting to protect this, you know, adopted daughter who became her daughter. Um, but I think that portrayal did so much to confirm um, 
the, the lives that people are actually living and, and they're watching this reality. What do you, what do you say, Juliana? I agree with absolutely everything you had to say, um, mostly because I've seen adoption occur in my own family and I've seen it handled with that same type of care and love and you know we can attribute a lot of the whole taking in the family member and treating them as family there's no step this adopted that it's just family there's a lot of cultures where you walk down the street with um, you know, a family member and someone says, oh, they might say, hey, hey, this is my stepsister so-and-so. In a Black family, in a culture that is that comes from slavery where families were ripped apart and you had to make family with whomever was around you just for survival, I believe that's part of the reason why our, in our culture it is less likely that once someone is family taken in, there are not going to be levels to that stuff. Right. You're my sister. You're my daughter. You're my, mm-hmm. you're not my half, my half this, my step that. And I don't right. say that with any judgment on anyone who uses terms half this or step that. Right. I simply make an observation that I feel is attributable to the unique type of relationship that black people have to America. And for Wilona's uh, would to bring Penny in, take her as her own, and have to deal with her, you know, helping Penny to grow beyond abuse and in the middle of a comedy and still be right. able to find something to laugh about. If right. that's not Black life in America, I don't know what is. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> oh, man, she had a stellar career. But uh, did anyone happen to see uh, the tribute? Uh, by Bernadette Stannis, who played Thelma on Good Times. Was it saw just a tweet? It was not uh, her tweet. It may have been an Instagram little short video clip where she talked okay. about how excited she was to see Janae actually sitting down writing the song, the theme song to uh, the Jeffersons. And mm. she was actually uh with her as she was doing it i think janet was wow as well and she was just saying she's like hey what are you doing janae she's like, hey i'm writing a song i don't know if they're gonna like it but i'm gonna pitch it to them uh it's for this show called the jeffersons and i'm gonna see if they like it and um the rest is history um everybody uh just adored her um she went on to make some very very <laughs> memorable screen appearances uh there was a all-black cast on a, a movie called Five on the Black Hand Side. She was in that. She was in I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, where she played Keenan Ivory mm-hmm. Wayans, overprotective mother. She was in Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle. I think that was in 2003, playing the mom of, uh, she was Mama Bosley, I believe, for uh, Bernie Mac. Uh, she was a very versatile actress, and she instantly sort of engendered this feeling of being home. I mean, because she was so real to us, given that, coming from this culture, I mean, and what the TV series Good Times meant to all of us. I mean, there was something very grounding about Janae Dubois when she came on the screen. She, she really felt like our mama, you know? She really felt like our community mama in many ways. 
Uh, she's going to be missed. Uh, I want to thank both of y'all for coming aboard to help us pay tribute to the wonderful one and all, Miss Janae Dubois. May she rest in power forever and ever and for all of eternity. Uh, Janine and Juliana, uh, what can you tell us about what you're working on currently? Uh, any projects coming up that we can be aware of? Uh, well, this is Janine, and uh, right now I'm trying to work to finish an an ebook, uh, which will be a writing manual. I'm I'm a writer and editor, and so I'm working on a project called uh, Rhythm in the Writing: How to Make Your Words Dance and Sing. Ooh. And so that'll be out in the next couple of months. It's just a primer for people who are starting out on their writing journey right and on. need some advice. Yeah. Oh, terrific. And you ought to know, because uh, Janine has been in the game for a long time, and she has written some amazing articles that before I even met her, I was reading. I was gobbling up those Billboard magazine <laughs> articles that you were writing, not even knowing that one day I was going to meet you. So you, of all people, are an authority on this, and I can't wait for that to come out. Can you keep us posted on that? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, though, Roman. It's, it's been a blast, and we love you, Alona. We'll never forget you. Never forget. Thank you, Janine. Uh, Juliana Bowden. Yes, yes. What am I working on? Yeah, what you, you uh, always got. So, what what are you not working wh on? Wait. I'm I'm working on I'm working on ways to kiss up to Janine so I could get a copy of the book and like you know polish <laughs> my game up. Right. That's what I'm working on. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Well, you, well, should, in, in, you, you got things all, going on over there at Black Tree TV, right? That is true. But uh, I do a little moonlighting for the community at the Pan-African uh, Film and Arts Festival. And it happens yes. that uh, at the time of this conversation, mm -hmm. we're headed into a really, really big closing day for uh, for the Pan-African as closing days, opening days, you know, those are always big, big times for a film festival. And this year we're going to be celebrating a movie called uh, Zulu Wedding. And it's really, really funny. It's got okay. some new faces and a couple of familiar faces in it that um, I would love for people to check out. They can go to P, uh, they can go to PASF.org and see all the films that well excuse me they could see all of the you know titles and some trailers and some pictures and things like that for all the different films that came through this year and uh whereas it had been you know over well over 100 films over the past few years milestone broke 200 films that were oh, uh that's right you know that 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 got programmed this year from nice. all over the world, you know, several, several languages, several, several nations, all represented right there in Los Angeles, mm. um, as you know, un under the guise of this amazing program founded by uh, Babu Getty Glover and uh, Miss Jeanette Dubois. And my last word on yes. Miss Dubois, uh, can we just pay tribute to the fact that this woman was as fine in her seventies as she was back in the day when she was walking through them doors at, uh, okay. at times. Juliana, she's my, she, she is my, she's my gold forever. Did you see I mean, her on the good times live episode when she came out? At the yes. Movie? She looked good. Didn't Can, she? <laughs> I, no, she, she looked so good that you had to say looked it. I mean, this, <laughs> this, this woman, that th this woman, when we spoke so reverently about mm -hmm. the image of black 
women that she made sure the world knew who we were at our very best. That's right. She carried that forever. All the way. She is go she is like black girl magic, you know, hot goals all the way to the end. Between mm. her and mm-hmm. Bernadette Stan between her, Bernadette Stannis and Angela Bassett, I've got my workout plan and my goals for the rest of my <laughs> life. Well Bern- Bernadette <laughs> is just blessed as Janae was and is. She's gonna be an angel in our corner now. And uh, she'll be looking over that wonderful Pan-African Film Festival that you are uh, championing, Juliana. And uh, I think she's going to be with us forever. In fact, I'm sure of that. And all of us will be forever rewarded by that gifting. Well, this is Psychotic Bump School, KCWG, thetruth.com. I'm DJ Rome. That was Juliana Bolden and Janine Coveney helping us pay tribute to the late and great eternal Janae Dubois. Well, that's our show, y'all. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and you know we're here every single Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time. I also want to thank our very special guest for the evening, Dr. Chase Moore. Check him out on Amazon Books, where you can find his newest release, The Emotion, The Tree, and Me. Also want to thank Emily Wessel, mental health counselor, counselor that is, from California, as well as Janine Coveney and Juliana Bowden for that amazing tribute to the late, great Janae Dubois. May she rest in paradise. Well, that's our show. Also want to send a shout out to Frank Starks, the Iron Man behind the board. And we're out of here, y'all. Take care. See you next week.